Good morning, everybody. Um, our reading this morning is taken from Genesis chapter 35, and we're going to be reading the whole chapter, verses 1 to 29. Um, as we've just been singing, um, speak, O Lord, till your church is built. And I think we thank the Lord that he still continues to speak to us. And um, we pray and ask the Lord this morning that he will enable us to have ears to hear what he says to us through his word. The chapter 35, starting at verse 1, will be found on page 32 of the Bible, of the church Bible. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak below Bethel, so it was named Elon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bohar, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, 
Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's maidservant Bilhah, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's maidservant Zilpah, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived a hundred and eighty years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is God's word. Thank you, Brenda, very much indeed. Well, do please keep your Bibles open um, at the passage that Brenda has just read for us as we come to the last of our studies in the series of the life of Jacob. I'm going to ask the Lord to meet with us as we look at this chapter together. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have promised to be with your church, watching over us, protecting us and providing all that we need for life and godliness. We thank you that you know our past and understand it completely, that you know our needs and are able to meet them adequately, that you know our destiny and are able to prepare us for it perfectly. Will you come to us now and speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word, that each of us might be conscious that we are listening to the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ calling us now to follow him into the future. For we ask it in his mighty name. Amen. Amen. I wonder if you uh, notice the, the words and the phrases that you typically use in normal, everyday speech. Um, I ask the question because the way that we talk about things, the, the actual words and the phrases that we use, are a window into our soul. They, they reveal that the assumptions that we have about our world and the way that we actually understand everything that's going on around us. Whether we realise it or not, our speech reveals what we really believe about what is important and what is not. Now that's certainly true for us as individuals, but it's also true for society as a whole. So, for example, recent studies have noticed a significant change in the language used by politicians. It seems that at the very beginning of the 20th century, so a hundred years ago, politicians spoke a very different language from politicians today. So, at the beginning of the 20th century, political speech sounded rather like this. These policies are good and true, and we are committed to pursuing them. But today, political speech sounds rather more like this. 
I feel good about these policies and I'm going to do everything I can to bring them to pass. Now, I know it sounds very similar, but I'm sure you can hear the difference. And the difference points to a dramatic sea change in our culture. You see, it's the difference, isn't it, between things being objectively right and good and true and whether I feel good about them or not. People have described this sea change in many different ways, but perhaps the most accurate is to say that we have created a culture of narcissism. And that's saying that we've become obsessed with ourselves and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about our world. These days, the most important thing is that we should feel good about ourselves and about the world around us and that we are essentially optimistic. Now, what is even more disturbing is that the same shift has been observed in pulpit speech. So, a hundred years ago, typically the message from the pulpit on Sunday morning would sound rather like this. This is God's truth. This is God's grace. This is God's gospel. Let us respond in faith and in obedience, no matter what happens. Now, against that, pulpit speech in the 21st century often sounds more like this. You need to feel good about yourself. You need to feel good about God. And you need to feel good about the things that God is doing in your life. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but the sad truth is that if that were the gospel, we would actually have to rip out most of the pages in our Bibles, and especially the pages that we're looking at together this morning. This is actually the tail end of the story that we've been following for a number of weeks now about God's remarkable dealings with a man who was given a name that expressed his nature, his nature as a grasper, as a twister, as a deceiver. But God has now been working in this particular man's life for 30 years, and the central question at this point in the story is not how Jacob might be feeling about it. No, the central question is where is Jacob spiritually? And you know, friends, whenever you and I come to the Word of God and we ask God to speak to us, as we did in the song we sang a moment ago, that is the first question that God has for you and I. He says, my dear child, where are you spiritually this morning? Are you as spiritually strong as you have ever been? Or was there a time when you were closer to me than you are right now. Because if there was, then no matter how you might be feeling, that's a problem. 
Your feelings have got nothing to do with it. The reality is you are in spiritual danger and you need to do something about it. Now, I don't presume to know where any of you are spiritually this morning. But if any of us are feeling the challenge of God's question in our own hearts, then there is actually no better passage to get us back on track than the one that Brenda has just read for us. Because it shows us how spiritual renewal comes to the children of God in every generation. So let me draw your attention to four features of Jacob's experience and you can find these on the inside of the bulletin that you were given as you came in this morning. Four features of Jacob's experience that brought him back to God. And notice first then that the passage begins with a gracious invitation. A gracious invitation, verse 1. Now, we need to do a bit of contextual work here, particularly for those who are with us for the first time. Last week, we saw that Jacob was transformed spiritually by the touch of God. In that extraordinary wrestling match by the Jabbok River, Jacob learned that in whatever situation he might be facing, he must depend on God rather than his own plans and schemes. Now, we would like to think, wouldn't we, that after that very dramatic encounter, that Jacob and his family lived happily ever after. But sadly, that was not to be. But of course, that's terribly realistic, isn't it? Um, Every Christian knows that a radical experience of the grace of God is not actually a passport to a trouble-free life. Quite the opposite. And that's what we have here. Because almost immediately, Jacob makes a serious wisdom mistake. Just glance back, if you will, to the end of chapter 33 and verse 18, which is on page 31. Chapter 33, verse 18, page 31. Verse 18. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Helohe Israel. Now that sounds terribly promising. Uh, For a start, Jacob and his family are now safely in the land of Canaan, according to God's promise. And also, Jacob uh, has built an altar. So clearly, he's not neglecting his spiritual life. The problem, however, is that Jacob has forgotten his vow to God. Twenty years previously, Jacob had made a solemn vow that if God brought him safely back to the promised land, that he would return to Bethel and worship God there. That's chapter 28, verse 22. Don't turn to it now. The problem is 
Jacob didn't follow through. He made his camp at Shechem. Bethel was 20 miles further up the road. Jacob didn't go there. Unfortunately, the the city of Shechem was godless and corrupt. And Jacob didn't simply pay them a brief visit. No, no, he lingered by the city for around 10 years. And in chapter 34, which we haven't had time to look at in our series, Jacob's family find themselves on the brink of disaster. Jacob's daughter Dinah is brutally raped. And when Jacob is slow to react, uh, his sons Simeon and Levi take matters into their own hands, putting all the men of the city to the sword. Now this was a complete disaster for Jacob. And you can see just how disastrous it was if you come with me to the end of chapter 34 and verse 30 on page 32. Chapter 34, verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in the land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. Now suddenly you see, everything that Jacob has been striving for is under threat. And that is the context for understanding what happens in our passage this morning. Because at the beginning of chapter 35 and verse 1, God comes to Jacob And he says, verse 1, chapter 35, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Now Bethel, of course, was the place where God had given Jacob wonderful promises. It was the most precious place on earth to Jacob. And no doubt in the middle of the Shechem crisis, Jacob may well have said to himself, well, you know, I have been such a fool. I wonder if I will ever see Bethel again. Well, Jacob certainly was a fool, but instead of casting him off, God is very gracious to Jacob. And he says to him, look, fulfill your vow. Make a fresh start. Go up to Bethel. Now, why does God put it like that? Well, geographically, Bethel is about a thousand feet above Shechem. But when God tells Jacob, go up to Bethel, there's a great deal more to it than mere geography. God was urging Jacob to to rise up spiritually from the valley of compromise and defeat to the high ground of faithfulness and victory. Now you and I need to think carefully about this this morning because like Jacob, you and I know exactly what it's like to live in a pagan culture with all of the spiritual pressures that go with that. And we know how easy it is, even for the keenest Christians amongst us, to find ourselves compromising spiritually. It happens 
slowly. It happens gradually. After all, it was ten years before Jacob reaped the fruit of his complacency. And today, the incessant bombardment from the media, which demands that we do what feels good rather than what is right, that we gratify our selfish desires and pleasures rather than pursue holiness and righteousness, that bombardment can break through into the life of the keenest of Christians. Isn't that right? Have I got that right? Now perhaps that's where you are this morning, I don't know. Perhaps you're feeling that everything you've been hoping for in your relationship with God is gradually beginning to slip away, that God seems rather distant. Now if that is so, then through this text this morning, God is calling you to go up to Bethel. Now the question is, what on earth does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is going back to the church where you were converted. Now, what it means is keeping the promises that you have made to God. Now, here at St Barnabas, um, our landlords, as you know, are the Salvation Army. And some of you know that the, the founder of the Salvation Army was a man called William Booth. And uh, towards the end of his life, someone asked William Booth, General what has been the secret of your spiritual fruitfulness? And he replied, well, you know, there was a day in my life when I said to God, God, you will have everything there is to have of William Booth. And after his death, when someone told that story to his daughter, she said, well, you know, that wasn't really the secret of his spiritual fruitfulness. The real secret was that having given that promise to God, he kept it. Now, what promises have you made to God? Now, obviously, I can't possibly know about any private promises that you might have made, um, but I do know some of the public ones. So, for example, if you were confirmed you made a public promise to God to continue in personal Bible study and prayer. If you had your children baptised in church, then you made a public promise to set an example to your children of godly living and to instruct them in the word of God. And if you're married... Well then, we husbands promised God that we would love, comfort and honour our wives and be faithful to them. And wives, you promised that you would love, honour and obey your husbands. Now the question is, are we keeping our promises to God. That's the question that this text is asking this morning. And if not, if you're wondering what's happened to your relationship with the Lord, if you're wondering why the Lord feels rather distant, 
Then hear God's gracious invitation to you this morning. My dear child, he's saying, it is time for you to go up to Bethel. Now that brings us to the second feature of Jacob's experience in this passage, which I've called decisive consecration. Decisive consecration, verses 2 to 7. Now I've no doubt that when Jacob heard God's voice in the middle of the mess that he had made at Shechem, he must have been overjoyed. But Jacob knew perfectly well that before he could travel to Bethel, there was some urgent spiritual spring cleaning that he needed to do. Now don't misunderstand, uh, the place itself wasn't important. It's actually what it signifies that matters. And Jacob knows that unless there is real repentance beforehand, well simply going back to the place, back to Bethel, isn't going to bring the blessing. Now, friends, I think that's a mistake that many of us often make. Perhaps there was a time in your life when God gave you um, a special awareness of his mercy and grace, um, either perhaps when you were in a particular place or, or maybe when you read a particular book. And so often we think that, well, if only I can go back to that place or if I can go back and read that book again, the blessing will come automatically. But you see, the blessing of God isn't attached to a particular place or to a particular book, other than the Bible. No, it's attached to the God who met us there. And without repentance, we can't expect anything from God. Now, Jacob knows that. And so he gives his family a very clear instruction in verse 2. Have a look at it. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then, come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Now, at one level, it's absolutely terrific to see Jacob taking spiritual leadership in his family. It's actually the first time we see Jacob doing that. It's another proof, I think, of the reality of his transformation at the River Jabbok. But, you know, I find it very interesting that although it's now 30 years since Jacob's spiritual pilgrimage began there is still idolatry in his family. And apparently Jacob knew all about it. I think it was the martyr Jim Elliot um, who said, it takes the whole of your life to give the whole of your life to God. Now clearly that was true of Jacob. God had been absolutely faithful to Jacob. He'd kept every single one of his promises without fail. But Jacob's family still had their little gods tucked away just in case the Lord might let them down. And we smile at their foolishness, don't we? And we say, oh, how primitive. 
But even as we do that, if we're honest, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us know that in spite of our own professions of faith, that we too are hanging on to our own little private collection of foreign gods. We've set our affection on things that make us feel somehow more secure. We might be holding on to them so tightly that we're not even aware of it. The Puritan scholar Matthew Henry picks up on this in his commentary on this particular passage and he puts it like this. In families where there is a face of religion and an altar to God, yet many times there is much amiss and more strange gods than one might expect. And you know, the foolishness of it all is that at the end of the day, there is no security in any of our foreign gods. There's no security in material possessions because when we die we leave them all behind. There's no security in your reputation that can disappear like the morning mist. There's no security in any influence we might have or any success we might achieve. And if we make an idol of our family, which is such a common thing today, let me tell you, there is no ultimate security in families either. In fact, there is no security for any of us in anything until we hear the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ saying, my dear child, open your hand and let all these things drop so that I can take hold of your hand because only I can give you the ultimate security that you are seeking. And you see, it's only when we do that, it's only when we stop giving the love and loyalty that belongs to Jesus, uh, um, sorry, when we, when we stop giving the love and loyalty that belongs to him, that we've been giving that to other things, that we can expect to receive God's blessing. We've got to stop doing that. Well, at least in the end, Jacob's family got that right. They took all of their foreign gods and all the other superstitious paraphernalia that they might have had and they gave it to Jacob and he buried it. But you see, Jacob actually asked them to do more than that, didn't he? And notice that the command in verse 2 is wonderfully balanced. You see, they also had to purify themselves and change their clothes. Now, what does the change of clothing signify? You see, the mark of true repentance is more than simply getting rid of false gods. It's substituting them with fresh affections. Now again, I wonder if we understand that this morning. You see, if our understanding of the Christian life is limited to stopping doing wrong things, then all that happens at the end of the day is that we become like little Pharisees, isn't it? We will be absolutely right, but absolutely metallic 
and absolutely unchristlike. The New Testament talks about this in a variety of different ways and we've got time to look at just one of them now. Keep a finger in Genesis and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4 on page 828. Ephesians 4, page 828. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you that Ephesus was one of the most idolatrous cities in the ancient world and every Christian convert faced the same challenge of how to break free from the old life and walk in the freedom that is only available to us in Christ. And we're going to pick it up at verse 22. Ephesians 4, verse 22. Paul says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now, what's he doing? He's talking here about conversion. When God converted you, he changed the way that your mind works so that you could understand and believe his truth. But Paul won't let you stop there. If you stop there, you haven't gone far enough. And that's why in verse 24, Paul says, you were also taught to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, that is something that we must do. You know, just as you would never ever dream of going to work in the morning without putting your clothes on, at least I hope you wouldn't, so God expects us to come to him every day and ask for grace to put on our new self, to put on our new identity in Christ as his disciples. Now, please come back to Genesis and let me ask you this. Have you got the picture? You see, there can be no Bethel experience, no Bethel blessing without decisive consecration. So what we've got to do is round up all the foreign gods that we've been secretly cherishing and we've got to bury them beyond recovery. And then what we've got to do is come to Christ for purification and a change of clothing. Now, will you do that this morning? Will you hear God's call to put away from your heart everything that should not be there? And will you come to Christ for cleansing and for forgiveness? You see, if you're not willing to do that, there's no point in making your way to Bethel because there's no blessing for you there. But if you are willing to do it, well then the third feature of Jacob's experience is as wonderful as it is unexpected and I've called this miraculous preservation. Miraculous preservation. Now, we've already seen, haven't we, that the crisis at Shechem 
put Jacob and his family in extreme danger. The locals now viewed them as a threat. And Jacob is frightened of an armed response at any moment. And now, God has asked Jacob to go 20 miles deeper into this dangerous country. It's going to be a dangerous journey. Going to Bethel is not a safe option. But in verse 5, we read these extraordinary words. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell upon the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. Now, we don't know exactly what the terror of God was. Um, Was it a mysterious panic that gripped the Canaanites? Uh, Was it the angel of the Lord going ahead of them? We don't actually know, although interestingly, God promises this identical protection to Israel in the book of Exodus as they approach the promised land. You don't need to turn to it, but in Exodus 23, God says... My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. That's Exodus 23, verse 27. So clearly, this this terror of God in our passage wasn't a one-off. And the fact that we don't know exactly what it was mustn't blind us to the important principle. You see, in verse 1, God had promised to preserve Jacob when he was running away from his brother Esau. And now, God preserves him again. Because Jacob and his family passed through all of these dangers and pass through the middle of their enemies, and yet God miraculously preserves them. Now, the question is, of course, what does that mean for us this morning? Does that mean that if you and I obey God, that we'll never have any trouble again? No, I'm afraid it doesn't mean that, and we'll come to that in a moment. But it does mean that when God calls us to do something to advance his purposes, he does sometimes intervene to preserve us physically from danger. So, for example, in the book of Acts, um, God preserves the Apostle Paul, doesn't he, from tremendous dangers, uh, from murderous attack, from storms at sea, and all of those things, so that Paul can preach the gospel in Rome. And more recently, in our own generation, we've seen God is still doing something rather similar to this when he looks after those who respond to his call to take Bibles into closed countries. We saw that with Brother Andrew, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago. But in many ways, you know, the greater preservation in this chapter is not physical, It's spiritual. Because in this chapter, I wonder if you noticed it, Jacob suffers three funerals 
and a family disgrace. So there's the funeral, isn't there, of Jacob's childhood nurse, Deborah. Um, That's in verse 8. And then there's the devastating, tragic funeral of his favourite wife, Rachel, in verse 19. And then, of course, there's the funeral of Jacob's father, Isaac, at the end of the chapter, in verse 29. And as if that wasn't enough, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn son, he, he makes a bid for the headship of the family by seducing his father's mistress, Bilhah. So, friends, can you see, these were days of terrible sorrow and grief and hardship for Jacob. And, you know, we can't help wondering, can we, well, how on earth did this affect his faith? Well, one of the commentators has a brilliant remark on this. It's on the back of the blue sheet, if you'd like to follow with me. He says this, God has many ways of making permanent in our lives the lessons of his providence and grace. And one of these is the discipline of sorrow. Sweet are the uses of adversity, as we are now to see in the unfolding of the story of Jacob. There is nothing in its way more striking than the fact that from the time that Jacob fulfilled his vow in Bethel to the day that he learned of Joseph's preservation in Egypt, he was scarcely ever out of the furnace of affliction. It's good, that, isn't it? It's good. We find it strange. In our own times of distress, we tend to cry out to God, don't we? We cry out, why? Why? Why have you allowed this in my life? I've been faithful to you. But my friend, suppose God could choose to fully explain why this suffering has been allowed. What does that actually do for us? Does it it make the pain and the ache any less? Of course not. And you see, friends, can I say, when we ask that, we're asking the wrong question. And God knows that we're asking the wrong question. And that's why he doesn't answer us on that level. But you see, what he does do is he answers the needs of our hearts. The questions remain. But we discover that there can be peace. So, for example, in the book of Job, the most important lesson is that when God finally responded to Job, he didn't answer a single one of his questions. Not one. Instead, what he did was he revealed himself to Job personally. And that brought Job peace. And my friends, that is one of the biggest lessons we can learn in the Christian life. When sorrow comes, don't be asking, why has this happened? 
But let the loving Lord come to you in the fullness of his comfort and care and grace. Let let him overwhelm you with that and lead you into peace. Into a peace in which your faith actually grows and deepens and matures. And that's precisely what happens here. So notice lastly and very briefly that between the death of Deborah and the death of Rachel God grants Jacob a surprising revelation. A surprising revelation in verses 9 to 15. Now notice the pattern in the chapter. Jacob has led his family out of spiritual compromise. The foreign gods have gone. He's kept his vow. He's brought his family to Bethel. And now look at the lovely words at the end of verse 9. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. Isn't that lovely? Isn't it? What follows is actually the last direct revelation from God to the patriarchs. This is the last time that God speaks directly to any of them. And it's not only the last, but it's the richest and the fullest of all of God's promises. Includes the promise of kings and a community of nations and a bunch of other things which we don't have time to look at this morning. But what I want us to see is that God comes to Jacob in this marvellous personal way on the far side of sin and compromise and failure. Now that's surprising, isn't it? We weren't expecting that. True, Jacob has repented and he's cleaned things up at home, but his failure was a real one. And yet, God came to him. And it's as if he said, look... You've made many, many mistakes. You've gone down many wrong roads. But I am the faithful God. And I haven't changed my mind about you. And I want you to know that I am still there for you. And all my promises to you will be fulfilled. And friends, it's the same for us as Christians. I can't say to you that if you go up to Bethel and keep all your promises to God that you will suddenly become immune from the sorrows and challenges of life. But I can tell you that whatever happens, God will be with you. How can we be sure? Do you remember back in chapter 28 that Jacob made a vow that he would do certain things if God brought him back to his father's house just as he promised. And in this chapter, Jacob does come back to his father's house. And it's as if Moses, who wrote this book, is saying to us, can you see God 
has been faithful. That is the message of the life of Jacob. God is faithful. God carries out his purposes and he always does and that is a message that you and I need to hear again and again and again. It doesn't matter how weak we are. It doesn't matter how limited we are in our gifts. God is faithful. And he is sovereign. And though we don't know what the future holds this morning, if you're a Christian, you can know this for an absolute certainty. God is with you. He will never leave you. And he will keep all his promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you and worship you that you are perfectly faithful. And that if we belong to you through faith in Christ, we know that you will bring us safely home. But Lord, we are not faithful. And we are living in a faithless world And Lord, because of our faithlessness, we sometimes feel that you are distant and have forgotten us. So Lord, help us to learn from Jacob. Help us to go up to Bethel to fulfil all the promises that we have made to you. Promises to listen to your voice in Scripture Promises to come to you in prayer and promises to love one another. Lord, won't you help us keep all these promises today and always? For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.